Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And then in verse 17, I've been waiting the whole book to teach this. (laughs) Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. And let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that is in your book. Not just that is contained in the book, Lord, but how it's there, what it does, the big things in our life that you instruct us concerning, the smaller things in our life. We thank you that you are so committed to every portion of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength being conformed into the image of your Son, that we might experience the freedom and the joy and the blessing and the abundant life that is found there. And we thank you, Lord, for these verses and the place that they play in all of that. And we pray that you would open these verses up to us. Tell us why they're important to you and why they're important to us, Lord. And we ask that you would do it by your Holy Spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The world that we live in is made up of two kingdoms. There are the kingdoms of this world that are built upon the wisdom of man, man's ideas concerning the meaning and the purpose of life. Man's ideas and conjectures related to what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad. And because these things are built upon man's wisdom, the result is is that the kingdoms of this world are a very unstable kingdom. Because man is an unstable being independent from God. And then there is the kingdom of God, an unshakable kingdom. And unshakable because it is built upon the very foundation of Christ himself and built upon the unchanging, perfect word of God. And each of these two kingdoms produces an entirely different quality of life, an entirely different quality of person, an entirely different citizen. And in Hebrews chapter 13, the Holy Spirit closes the book here by giving us a series of exhortations that are intended to differentiate our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God from those who are merely the citizens uh, of this world. And they are exhortations that if they are taken seriously by us as Christians and then obeyed, then it will make our lives different 
in a very noticeable and a very meaningful way from the world all around us. For example, the Holy Spirit is already laid out in this chapter in verse 1 as Christians were to love one another as a family because that's what we are. In verse 2, we're to show hospitality toward one another. And then we're to be loyal to one another. We're never to forget a Christian, never to leave a Christian behind, even if they're in the most overlooked places in earth, including prisons for their faith. And fourth, we've seen that our lives as Christians are to be marked by sexual purity. And last time we were together, our lives, we learned that our lives are to be marked by contentment, materially speaking, as opposed to living our lives under the uh, domination of covetousness and the ungodly desire for more. And if a Christian is faithful, just to those five exhortations alone, you think about how different a person is that lives just obedient to those things, It produces a kind of person that when the rest of the world looks at that person, they will realize that person is marching to a different drummer. They have a different God. They have a different philosophy. There's a different uh, something that they are following. They are a part of a different kingdom. There's an old saying that I heard. I don't know how old it is, but I've been saying it for so long it's old. (laughs) But there's a saying that I read in a book many, many years ago that I love so much, and it says, the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. And that saying teaches us the significance of every act of obedience that we commit as Christians, that every time we obey God's Word, we just get used to doing it. We get used to being who and what we are. We get used to being around other Christians. And we don't realize that even as the world is growing further and further away from God today, how that just simple obedience and sometimes the simplest and smallest of areas in life make our lives dramatically different from the kind of person that the world is producing. So that when we take and we obey the Lord in a given situation, we uh, tell the truth when everyone else isn't telling the truth. They're padding their sales uh, numbers. Or whatever the situation might be, and we obey the Lord in that situation, it's like an explosion goes off in the spiritual realm And when a person doesn't blow up and get angry at another person, when that would be the norm and the culture that we're in, people walk away from it and go, what in the world just happened there? I think I've just seen a different kingdom than the kingdom that's all around me. And when they see that consistently through our lives, they begin to realize not only are our lives different, but they are different because of the kingdom that we're a part of. And because we are under a king that is different from the king that the world is under. And as people become aware of the kingdom of God through our obedience, whether it's in sharing the gospel or in telling the truth or whatever it might be, that 
they can then give consideration themselves to then becoming a part of that kingdom as well. And this morning we come to a sixth way in which the kingdom of God is represented before the world, and that is through our respect as Christians for God-given authority. Now, some people might think that that's not a big deal to talk about respect for authority. Why commit a whole Sunday morning to something like that? Why would God commit several verses in Hebrews chapter 13 to say nothing of the rest of the Bible related to submission to authority? But it's not a small issue, and, and, and certainly not as small as some people make it out to be. The Bible teaches that as the day of Jesus' return approaches, and what the Bible refers to as the last days, that lawlessness or disrespect for authority is going to abound. And we see it. And when people see a respect for God-given authority in the life of a Christian as lawlessness and rebellion and a lack of submission begins to dominate the world around us, then it is one more way that they recognize that our lives are different in an attractive way, in a way that looks like God. Now, of course, uh, we are, as Christians, we're to show respect toward the laws of the nation that we live in as long as those laws don't violate what God tells us to do in His uh, Word because God has given human government as a means of maintaining law and order. And human government for that purpose is an institution of God. But here the Holy Spirit focuses specifically on our submission to God-given authority within the kingdom of God and within the local church itself. And you notice in verse 7 that leaders in the church are described as those who rule over you. God calls some among his people to positions of leadership. And the word rule there is an interesting one. We think of we think of somebody ruling over someone else and the way that it's operated in terms of the world and the corruption of it. You see, somebody rules and it's like fee, fi, fo, fum, you know, I mean, just some big ogre or monster uh, demanding everything for himself or herself to the neglect of everyone else. But the word rule literally means to lead, to go before, to go first, to lead the way. And leaders in a local church like this, Calvary Chapel in Modesto, would include pastors, would include elders in the church, would include include, uh, deacons in the church. And those who are called by God to position of leadership must fulfill that calling on their lives as surely as any other Christian has to fulfill God's call upon their lives. And there are some people who can be naturally suspicious, I think, as to the motives of a person who would desire the position of leadership within a church because we would suspect someone that would desire a position of prominence or a position of authority within a local fellowship. But God does call people to those positions 
And when their motive for fulfilling that position is just simple obedience to God's call upon their life, it's a beautiful thing and it's a necessary thing. The, the best leaders in a local church are people who are doing it out of simple obedience to God's call upon their life. I would not do what I do independent of God's call upon my life. I'm very happy with what I do. I'm satisfied. It's very rich. It's very rewarding in, a, in all ways. It's just fabulous. It's, again, a very meaningful way for a person to spend their life as long as God has called that person to do that. But I certainly wouldn't get into a position like this to simply rule over people or to have authority over people or to stand in front of people on a weekly basis. Anyone that would believe that doesn't know me at all. So there are a lot of people who strive for position. They strive for authority, not because God has called them, but they do it out of selfish ambition. They, re- they do it for power. They do it because they have a deep need to be needed by other people and other motives like this, carnal kind of uh, motives. And they really do a lot of damage to God's name and a lot of damage to God's people. But we must never, ever allow the fact that that kind of thing goes on to cause us to look suspiciously upon everyone who's in a position of leadership within a church. Now, in the first century church, in the early church, the Apostle Paul wrote concerning leaders, he said, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that is an elder, a leader, uh, he desires a good work. And when Paul wrote that, he wrote that as an encouragement to men who felt they had been called by God to a position of leadership. And he wrote it as an encouragement for the simple reason that in that time in church history to become a leader within a local church, there were no perks associated with it. It merely put you at the front of the line for persecution and for hardship and for arrest. And so you didn't have to warn people away with all of these other wrong motives. The hardship and the persecution already sifted through a good amount of that. And what men, uh, uh, what men who were called needed at that time was an encouragement to be faithful to God's calling at whatever the cost. And the body of Christ is a family. The church is a family. We are united by the same Father, God the Father. We are united by the same blood, the blood of Christ. We are united by a common birth, being born again by the Holy Spirit. And just as there's an authority structure in a Christian family, so too there's an authority structure in a church. In a Christian family, the authority structure is this. Jesus is first. God is first. And then there is the husband, and then there is the wife. That's the authority structure that God has set up for the Christian family. The husband is in submission to Jesus, and the wife is in submission to her husband. 
and the husband is called to lead his family, and he has a God-given responsibility to lead his family, and he has a God-given authority to accomplish that. And in terms of the husband and with authority, the buck stops there. It doesn't mean that the husband is better than the wife. It doesn't mean that he's smarter than the wife. Everybody knows that, (laughs) especially the wife. It doesn't mean that he's more valuable than the wife in God's eyes. It just is that the buck had to stop somewhere, and God chose to have it stop with the husband. So like in a Christian marriage, the husband and the wife come to a place where they need to make a decision. And so they talk the situation all the way through. Both communicate their views, their feelings related to the situation. And, of course, 90% of the time uh, they're going to have come to the same conclusion ultimately that yes is the direction that we ought to go in. But there will be those times where they will discuss it with mutual respect, excuse me, for one another. They will pray diligently related to the issue, and each one will be convinced that one feels they ought to go left and the other feels that they ought to go right. So somewhere in this, in terms of authority, you have to have a tiebreaker or the whole thing stops in order for progress to occur. And God has given that authority to the husband. And so he makes that decision. He has the responsibility to make that decision. And God will honor him and honor the wife in recognizing that authority. And in the same way, God calls some within the church to lead and to oversee the affairs of the church. And it's a God-given authority. It's not something that somebody takes unto themselves. And because it is a God-given authority, it's to be respected. And when it is, God will honor that. In the book of Acts, we recognize that that was the pattern of the apostle Paul, wasn't it? In every city that he traveled to, he would preach the gospel, people would get saved, a church would get established, and then he would identify and ordain leadership within that church before he'd move on from that. Now, how in the world do you identify that kind of a leader? Well, they would possess the godly character that people could recognize that the Holy Spirit lists in 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, rather. These leaders would also exhibit a gifting and an ability and a spiritual fruitfulness that's consistent with a calling to leadership. For instance, for a pastor, an elder, they would need to be apt to teach or able to teach the Word of God. And there would also be the spiritual gift of leading in their life. And the Holy Spirit has a gift of leading. It's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives to people that are called into that kind of, of a position. How does a person know they've been called or gifted in this way? Well, leaders will lead. That's just what they will do. They lead because God has called them to that and by spiritual birth and spiritual gifting, he has brought that into their lives. You cannot call a person a leader. You can give them all the titles you want in the world. But if they don't lead, they're not a leader. 
But just because a person is willing to lead does not mean that they are a leader. Because there are two things that make up a leader. Number one, they will lead. And then when they lead, they will realize that there are people who are following them as they follow Christ. In other words, there will be people that recognize that God has a calling on this person's life and he's touching my heart to be a part of that calling. And so those are the two, those are the characteristics that make up the life of a leader. Now notice the characteristics that are to mark these leaders and he gives us these characteristics in verses 7 and verse 17. He said number one in verse 7 Uh, the kind of leader that God calls and the kind of leader that is supposed to have this kind of respect for the authority uh, that he has is that they speak the Word of God. So the teaching of the Word of God is a great focus of their ministry and of their time. Paul wrote in writing to leaders in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And a God-appointed leader, a God-chosen leader will be faithful to the ministry of God's word. When Jesus uh, met with Peter to recommission him following his uh, denials, his three denials of Jesus that he even knew him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus met with him and the disciples following his resurrection and Peter and Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And again, a second time, tend my sheep. And again, uh, the third time, feed my sheep. And so a leader within a church will have a great focus upon the teaching and the ministry of the Word of God toward the flock there. The Word of God is not only taught by such a leader, but the Word of God determines their definitions of right and wrong, their wisdom, their counseling, their decision-making within the church are based upon the Word of God. Then notice second also, in terms of these characteristics in verse 7, that such a leader will walk and live by faith. In other words, they don't just talk the talk. That's relatively easy. But they also walk the walk. They live the things that they are preaching and that they are teaching. There's the old joke about the pastor who lived his life so far below the standard of his teaching that the congregation came to wish that he never left the pulpit. And a godly leader, a godly leader who is chosen by God will never create that kind of a stumbling block for God's people. And every single pastor or every single elder or teacher of the Word of God, every single one of us should teach and preach the Word of God beyond our experience because we're all growing as Christians until the day that we go to heaven. 
But there should never be a deliberate living below the standard of Scripture in the life of a leader. And there should never be a glaring gap between what the Bible teaches and the life that he is living. They are to walk and to live by faith. He says, speaks there of considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, these leaders had remained faithful to the Lord, remained faithful to his word, had remained faithful in their calling as Christians and as leaders in the face of all of the persecution and hardship that these Hebrew believers were were allowing to cause them to think twice about continuing on with the Lord. They had not gone back to the Levitical system. They had remained faithful to Christ at all costs. And so that about their life was to be noticed and considered by other Christians. I noticed third concerning the responsibility of leaders to their congregation In verse 9, they will never ever pull you into various and strange false doctrines, but rather they will protect a flock from that. They will always draw a person into a deeper and deeper grace-based relationship with the Lord Jesus and with God the Father and never into a legalistic works-based relationship with God. If you do this, then he does this. And they're all about Jesus. They possess a very, very holy zeal to oppose whatever would attempt to make Christianity supremely about someone else or something else other than Christ and a relationship with him. Number four, he tells us in verse 17 that they watch out for your souls. In other words, they actively look out for the spiritual welfare of the people that they serve. And most often, the congregation will never be aware of that part of a leader's life within a church. All they'll know is that week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, they are able to come into that church. And when they come in, they feel spiritually safe when they do under his oversight or their oversight. And that has occurred not by accident, but because someone is working behind the scenes to watch out for their souls. And then fifth in verse 17, they minister with the realization that one day they're going to give an account to God for their faithfulness to his call upon their lives. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But these are the five responsibilities of leaders to those that they oversee. But then we want to look second this morning at the congregation's responsibility to these kind of leaders. And he tells us these things in verse, verses 7 through 9 and again in verse 17. He says that we are to remember them, verse 7. And so this call to remembrance, uh, 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 remember such leaders, probably speaks of former leaders 
who had been instrumental in these Christians when they had born again, been born again, but now have died and gone to heaven. Or perhaps, as is the case not only 2,000 years ago, but the case today where sometimes someone is influential in our life as a Christian, but God picks them up and he moves them to another city or on the other side of the world like the Narita family, and, and yet we have a history with them and their influence within our lives. And, and so these leaders had either died or moved on to another physical location. And they were to remember, the congregation was to remember the sacrifice and the faithfulness that they had witnessed in these leaders. The sacrifice and the faithfulness that had been such a strong impact upon them when they were new Christians and, and even as mature Christians. I hope every Christian has a good remembrance of such people in their Christian lives, memories that inspire faithfulness in our lives. I know I have them in my own life. I think of Bill MacDonald, now with the Lord. I think of the excitement that I used to experience as a young boy, late elementary school, junior high aged, high school aged. The excitement that I would feel those two or three times each year he came to Valley Bible Chapel in Napa to minister the word. I would look out the window of the church just waiting for a glimpse of his car to pull up to see him leave it and then enter into the church. I tell you, I hung on every word that he spoke when he ministered the Word of God. And he's now in heaven, but I'll never forget him and what he meant to me as the geekiest, most messed up junior high-aged boy I knew, and I was him. And I was starving for an adult role model and a spiritual hero And he was one of the men who met that need in my life. One time, Mr. Rose, who attended the church, Mr. Rose, and he had a large family. And what Mr. Rose, one of the responsibilities he took on for himself, he and his family, is that whenever there was a visiting speaker in town, and in that particular little denomination of Plymouth Brethren, which is what it was, there were a lot of guest speakers that came in and spoke in the course of a year. Well, they would always provide the, uh, uh, a early afternoon kind of dinner, after-services dinner for the speakers. And it was always a great meal, fried chicken. This was back when you didn't... There were no articles against fried chicken. <laughs> Mashed potatoes and gravy and and pie and dessert and sometimes more than one pie and all of this would be laid out and just a way of expressing appreciation to the speaker. And I remember one time Mr. Rose, for whatever reason, he was unable to host that lunch with his wife and his beautiful family on that Sunday. And so he asked me if I'd be willing to represent him at the table with Bill McDonald eating lunch. Well, I couldn't believe it. 
I mean, there just wasn't a kid more rough around the edges, more ill-mannered, untaught than my brother and myself and our two sisters. And how could I ever act as a host to Bill McDonald? But I wanted to, and I did it. And there I sat at this dining table in the in a old Victorian house. The dining room went on for a hundred yards. It was a length of a football field, it seemed. This big table, everybody around that table. And looking back on that wonderful meal, I can now I can see how Bill kept everything moving conversationally at the table and yet giving the appearance that I was doing it. How he would draw me into the conversation around the table when he knew it was safe to do so. It wasn't something I'd be stumped by or I'd be flubbed by or anything like that. He never put a situation in front of me in which I could fail in that particular environment. And he would draw me into the conversation where he knew I wouldn't embarrass myself. And, And he never, ever intruded one inch into the authority that had been given to me by Mr. Rose. Damien, do you think it would be a good time now to serve the dessert, or should we wait a little while? Oh, no, Mr. McDonald, I think we should have dessert right now. <laughs> I'll tell you, you don't forget those kind of leaders who treat you that way. I remember John Callis and my Sunday school teacher when I was in junior high school and how patiently he bore with my twin brother and I in teaching us the Word of God. I mean, you talk about blank slates on every level and yet making the Word of God so simple and so applicational to us. And when a great tragedy struck his family, I mean a great tragedy, not once, but twice I would watch him from across the church and watch his interaction with other adults and I could see the sadness that was in his eyes and on his face and how powerful it was to me to watch a grown man continue on with God whatever the cost. And I remember Dorothy Culbertson, a Christian friend of my mother, was the reason we came to that church. Dorothy and my mother, they had met because they shared something in common, and that something that they shared in common was mental illness. Sometimes I'd see her shaking and rocking the same way my mother would for hours. Excuse me. Somehow, just as a kid, you knew that life was not easy for Dorothy Culbertson. And yet how she loved the Lord and continued and persevered with the Lord. She clung to the Lord and she would tell anyone who would listen about their need for Him and the way of salvation. And I'll tell you, those are good memories that I placed a comparatively small value on 
at the time, but now they're priceless to me. God knowing that he would make much of them much later in my life. And they didn't quit. They held tight to Jesus. They stayed faithful to Jesus for many reasons. But one reason in the providence of God was so that I could have good memories in a childhood where good memories were very, very few. And because leaders did that for me, provided me with such good memories of the things of the Lord, such a model of endurance, I tell you, I want to be faithful to God. And maybe in some small way, He would use my life in somebody else's life in providing good and godly memories for them, just as others did for me. And those kind of memories are a great encouragement to faith in difficult times. And the Holy Spirit knows it. Second, he tells us that we are to follow their faith considering the outcome of their conduct. Again, in verse 7. They were faithful to the Lord and his word in the face of opposition and warfare and persecution and hardship and their lives provide a continual example and inspiration for us doing the same thing during the short season in which we have in human history to represent the Lord and the things of the Lord. And, and, and it's so meaningful and it's so powerful. We are to follow their faith and to follow their example. And then in verses 8 and 9, once again, we are not to wander into or to dabble in or be carried about with false doctrine. That was something that these readers of this letter were being tempted to do. It is always a false doctrine that attempts to dislodge me from my relationship with the Lord or dislodge me from a place where my relationship with the Lord is the supreme thing about my Christian life. Anything that comes in and is taught in such a way that it becomes a greater emphasis than my relationship with the Lord is something that is strange and various and something that is false or at least being given a wrong uh, proportion in terms of its importance. We're not to be like a leaf blown around by the wind in every direction that these various winds of doctrine blow in life. We're to be immovable concerning uh, anything that the Bible teaches, whether it has to do with salvation, with being born again, or how to be, grow and mature in this relationship once we are born again. And sometimes leaders are the ones that bring these doctrines into a local church. And it's a terrible thing when they do. But he's not addressing leaders specifically in this passage. He's addressing the congregation, the members. Sometimes it's the members of the church that keep bringing in every wind of doctrine and, and it becomes very taxing upon leaders who then have to deal with the false doctrine in order to keep it from destroying the church. I don't pastor such a church. 
So don't think that I'm trying to deal with something that's going on here. We deal with it, but it's very periodic. It's not something that's kind of institutional, that the latest craze that's going on even within professing Christianity is brought in in some major way by you or by anyone that attends this church on a regular basis. And so there's this attempt so often for the doctrine to come in, comes in not only through leaders, but it can come in through the congregation and the leader, uh, we have to realize that that creates more work for a leader to then deal with that. And would you notice that great statement concerning Jesus there in verse 8? It just seems to come out of nowhere. Jesus Christ does the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is it there in the Bible? It's a fabulous. It's a wonderful standalone verse, but it's not a standalone verse. It's got a context to it. And the context of the statement is false doctrine. And the author reminds the readers and us that Jesus doesn't change. Not his life as it's recorded in the scriptures, not his teaching. And any doctrines that come along and contradict the life and the teaching of Jesus are to be rejected. Salvation is still and will always be on the basis of faith in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus said, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was and is and ever shall be the only way to the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And only Jesus can lead us into an abundant life. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And so our Christian life after salvation should always draw us into a deeper relationship with Christ and a deeper understanding of his life and his teaching. Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. And Jesus is better than all of the idiotic and nonsensical redefinitions of Jesus and his teaching that men are continually coming up with and never more than in this hour in church history. And why is Jesus better than any redefinition by man of Jesus or his teaching? Because you cannot improve on perfection. He is already perfect. He cannot be made better out of our wisdom or our manipulations. And then notice in verse 17 that we are told that we are to obey such uh, leaders. In other words, to obey their teaching, what they teach from the pulpit or what they teach. Not all teaching occurs from the pulpit. Sometimes it occurs in counseling or in conversation where the ministry of the word is going on and it's the responsibility of the congregation to obey what is being taught as it's faithful to the word of God by these leaders. And I'll tell you, that's a good word. You think about how many Christians 
week in and week out, sit in various churches all around the world. They listen very politely to the teaching of these kinds of men without giving the slightest, having the slightest intention of ever obeying it. And then he tells us in verse 17, we're to be submissive to their authority. In other words, not only are they to be obeyed, but they are to be obeyed with a proper spirit, with a proper attitude. They have been given the authority by God to lead the church as the Bible instructs, and that authority is to be respected. And then number six, in case you're keeping count, in verse 17, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that allows them to enjoy fulfilling God's call upon their lives as opposed to being a grief to them. For some people, that's like a new revelation that leaders are human beings, that they're people, that they have a right to enjoy their life and their Christian life and their ministry as much as anybody else gets to in the body of Christ. And the grief that's spoken of there in verse 17 refers to the grief that is caused by Christians who wage a war of disobedience and rebellion against godly authority. Warren Wearsby wrote, he said, Some church members have a flippant attitude toward pastoral authority, and this is dangerous. And I agree. And it's growing. I don't say it's growing in this church at all. Not at all. But it's growing in general because of the disdain and the rejection of authority in general. Rebellion against authority in the culture is now fashioning more and more of those who identify with Christ. And again, not talking about this congregation. I'm so thankful that we have been largely spared that kind of thing through the years. Let me also add that when the atmosphere of a church becomes adversarial. It becomes full of conflict and hostility and tension. That will destroy the best of leaders. There are a lot of leaders who love a fight. They're energized by that kind of a dynamic in a church, but not the best leaders, not good leaders. It will kill the best of leaders. There's enough conflict in terms of spiritual warfare and resisting the influence of the world and fighting the good fight of faith, fighting against the world, the flesh, the devil, another way of putting it, that if the local church ceases to be a sanctuary from that, ceases to be a place of joy and have a sense of family, but becomes the site of conflict as well, who in the world can bear up under it? If this isn't a sanctuary, a refuge from the kind of fighting and relational problems and the backstabbing and the gossip and all those things that go on and are becoming more and more prevalent in the world, then if that comes into a church and begins to dominate a church, then where in the world do I, as a Christian, where in the world can I go to find relief from that kind of thing? And so... Who in the world can bear up under it? And I know that there's a lot of carnal and fleshly leaders that are the source of many of these kind of problems in a local church. But again, in verse 17, the Holy Spirit 
is directing this instruction to individual members of the church and instructing us to take no part in this kind of thing. The congregation bears as much a responsibility for a local church to be a place of peace, a place of joy, and a place of blessing as as the leadership uh, does. And, of course, as the writer declares, for this would be unprofitable for you. And the idea is that that kind of an atmosphere doesn't produce an environment that facilitates spiritual growth in individual Christians. If you've ever been in a church like that, where there's the factions and the parties and the disrespect for authority and every single thing that happens is a war, whether public or whether in private, in order for something to get accomplished, becomes very, very political. And I am not a politician. I say political in the worst sense of the word, politician in the worst sense of the word. But when that kind of a thing begins to happen in the church, spiritual growth stops. It stops because that becomes the whole focus week in and week out rather than the Lord himself and simply growing in our relationship with him. The amazing thing is that there can be a church that goes on years and decades with this kind of fighting going on within it And then you meet anyone that attends that church and you realize nobody is growing there and nobody has grown spiritually for years. It stops all spiritual progress and growth in everyone in the church. It's not good for the leaders, but the writer is telling us it's not good for the people either. I think it's important to realize that when you look into the eyes of any leader in a local church to realize that you are looking into the eyes of someone who is one day going to stand before the Lord himself and going to give an account for their faithfulness to their calling. And it's a hard calling. God makes sure that it's a hard calling or all these folks that get lifted up in pride. He knows how to remind us of the fact that our feet are clay like everybody else if we ever were prone to lose sight of that. And it's a huge responsibility. And every Christian should have, I think, a deep feeling of compassion for them, for their responsibility in this life and how they are going to one day be held responsible for their calling and the judgment to come. James says, brethren, be not many masters or teachers. You're going to face the harsher judgment. I'm going to face a harsher judgment by virtue of God's call upon my life. Jesus spoke and said, for every One to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Not related to salvation, but one day to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, to receive reward or an assessment of our faithfulness to our ministry 
a leader will one day stand before their, in a, that throne and before the Lord himself, and it will be a harsher and a stronger judgment. And as Christians, one of the distinctives that God wants us to be known for in this world is a respect for God-given authority, a respect that's to be demonstrated before the world in every church that identifies itself with the name of Christ. You think about how the division and the fighting and, again, the politics, much less church splits, the terrible, terrible damage that does to our witness for Christ and the world and how it causes the world to view us as being no less carnal or rebellious or different or as power-hungry as them. And where a church, a church where leaders teach God's Word and they love and tend God's people and they obey that Word themselves, they defend it against false doctrine, and where the members of that church show respect to those kind of leaders through their obedience and their submission, I'll tell you what that church becomes. It's a little slice of heaven right here in this world. A little slice of heaven that God knows that every Christian needs to be a part of on a weekly basis. It makes it different from everything else in the world. It brings glory to God and it lets the lost world see the kingdom of God and the teaching of Christ come before alive before their very eyes. Someone might be tempted to think that this subject isn't worthy of an entire Sunday morning to address it. But I'll tell you, no one thinks that who's ever been through a church split. And the damage that that does to leaders, to individual Christians, how it drags the name of God and the witness of God right through the mud. No one thinks this is a waste of time if you've ever attended a church that's filled with politics and power struggles and seen how ugly and how disheartening and how damaging that is. Now, everything in the book... Everything in this Bible is for edification, our exhortation, and our comfort, and it is all needed in order for us to conduct ourselves in a way that looks like Christ in this world, who was both a leader and a submitted follower. He said to his disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And he spoke to the Father on the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for all of the ways that you give us to represent Jesus in this world. 
even ways in which we would never think of or never consider them to be important. But it's only because of our ignorance and our lack of understanding so often that what the world is really wanting to see in the body of Christ and needs to see. And we thank you, Lord, for this passage and the instruction that it gives to us as leaders in this congregation and as those who follow leaders and respect their authority in this congregation. And Lord, we pray that you would use this time in your word this morning to continue to inoculate us as a body, as a church family, from ever going astray in these areas, Lord, and causing this church to be something less or far less than what you intend a church to be in the community in which you have planted it. Lord, we thank you for this instruction because we come to your word with a sincere desire to bring glory to you in every way that you give us an opportunity to do so. And we thank you, Lord, for teaching us about another way to do so this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning,